0: Post Reports is sponsored by Hunters on Amazon Prime Video. Inspired by true events, Hunters stars Al Pacino as the leader of a ragtag pack of Nazi hunters. Watch February 21st on Amazon Prime Video.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
2: It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post.
1: Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahi Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis, in for Martine Powers. It's Friday, February 21st. Today, the threat of Russian election interference. Again, how alcohol is changing shopping and the CIA's rebellious neighbors.
3: If we go back to sort of where this all began.
1: Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post.
3: Last Thursday, some senior intelligence and national security officials gave a classified briefing to members of the House Intelligence Committee in the Congress on election interference in 2020, which is obviously a big topic that people are paying a lot of attention to and there's a lot of anxiety about. And this was kind of a customary briefing to give members the lay of the land. And in that briefing, a senior official revealed that based on intelligence that the U.S. is collecting, Russia had, in her words, developed a preference for President Trump in the election. Didn't mean they were doing anything necessarily to try and get him elected, but they had a preference. And this is what the intel showed.
1: President Trump did hear about this, right? What was his response?
3: Yes, he heard about this a week ago last Friday, which was the day after this briefing to members of the House Intelligence Committee. And actually, he heard about it from members of the committee. Devin Nunes, actually the ranking member on House Intelligence, had told the president, look, we heard this briefing and one of your top intel officials said Russia has developed a preference for you to win. And the president was very angry about this. Also, the president believes this idea is a hoax. He told intelligence officials on Friday in the Oval Office, you're being played, this is nonsense, why would Russia want to help me? Very much a reprise of the things that he has said about the 2016 interference.
0: Now, Russia did not help me get elected.
3: Which, of you know, course, intelligence agencies deemed was also engineered to try and help him win. You know
0: who got me elected? I got me elected. Russia didn't help me at all. Russia, if anything, I think helped the other side.
1: So, getting angry is
3: one thing, but what did he actually do about it? Well, so the next day, on Friday, there's a briefing in the Oval Office uh, with President Trump and his acting intelligence director, a guy named Joe Maguire. And the president lights into Maguire, saying, "Why am I hearing about this not from you? What is this Russia hoax business all over again?" Told him, "You're getting played. Uh, there's no way Russia's trying to help me." And really gave him a dressing down. And it was basically at that moment, we understand that the president decided Joe McGuire was out. He was not going to nominate him permanently to fill that post. And Trump went with a guy named Rick Grinnell.
1: Who is Rick Grinnell and what are his qualifications for this job?
3: It is my great privilege to say welcome to the White House for the swearing in of the 29th United States ambassador to Germany, Richard Grinnell. Well, he is currently the U.S. ambassador to Germany. He has held some other high-profile positions in the past in republic administrations. He was a senior person at the U.N. and uh, the Bush administration. He doesn't have a lot of intelligence experience. Uh, in fairness, neither does Joe McGuire, the guy who he replaced. But he is a fiercely loyal and vocally so supporter of Donald Trump. Thank you, Mr. Vice President, and thank you, President Trump, for the faith that you both have put in me. I will not let you down. And I'm ready to work hard. This administration is totally focused on the American people. I saw the president in action last Friday. And if every American could see President Trump negotiate, they would be wildly supportive of having him as their representative in the White House. This is a man who's totally focused on the American people. Grinnell is probably most known uh, for a lot of Twitter tirades that he goes on. Twitter flame wars that he gets into with journalists and people that he perceives are being unfair or hostile to the president, including some of my colleagues here at The Post, and has this profile of being somebody who is not just staying within the sort of narrow confines of being ambassador to Germany. He weighs in on lots of other foreign policy issues about Iran, about other things that are going on in Europe, the perceived – Slights by European leaders against the president, sort of berating other European leaders for not spending enough on defense. These are all kind of issues that the president uh, bangs the drum on a lot. And Rick Grinnell is sort of a voice in Europe for the president and for the White House and particularly on social media.
1: But he's not going to be the permanent director of national
3: intelligence right we don't think so right he is so he's the acting director uh, and under law what's called the vacancies act the president has until march 11th to formally nominate a permanent replacement and rick Ronnell has said that's not going to be me and i think that this reflects according to our reporting some belief inside the white house that rick Ronnell might have a hard time getting confirmed by the senate because he's such a polarizing figure
1: And do we know if Russia has already interfered in the 2020 election?
3: We have heard comments from intelligence officials, and I think some of these have been public as well, that there is maybe we could even call sort of just an ongoing effort by Russia to, you know, seed social media with disinformation. That's almost become kind of part of the background noise, frankly, at this point. And we have heard officials say that other countries they believe as well might try to intervene in 2020. What we haven't seen is anything of, of great specificity yet. But what we're understanding from this briefing that happened last week is that there is at least some intelligence that gives analysts the – leads them to the conclusion that Russia is sort of looking at the field of candidates right now and at least has a preference that Donald Trump be the one who wins, that they think that his administration continuing another four years would be most advantageous to their interests.
1: And what's Russia saying about all of this?
3: Oh, Russia says they put out a statement, the the Kremlin spokesperson saying these reports were, you know, more paranoid uh, delusions. It's, you know, silly to think that Russia is intervening in the American political system. It's exactly what they've always said. It's just deny, 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 which is what you would expect. But we should also remember that the president has publicly, in some cases, taken the side of Russia in that. I mean, most famously, when he and Vladimir Putin appeared a few years ago at that summit in Helsinki, where they had a press conference, and President Trump said, you know, I look, I have my intelligence officials telling me Russia interfered. I have President Putin saying they didn't. I'll say this, I don't know why Russia would. Now, he later clarified and said, I meant to say wouldn't. But I think the message was pretty clear that uh, he he has a lot of skepticism about The U.S. intelligence community's position on this and is more often than not inclined to take Russia at their word that they're not interfering when I think it's plainly obvious that they are.
1: What does all of this mean for the intelligence community?
3: Well, there's a lot of anxiety, I think, any time there is a big shakeup in the leadership structure because you think, okay, well, who is this new person who's coming in? You know, intelligence agency leaders are usually political appointees. Sometimes they're very close to presidents. Sometimes they're not. But this administration is unique in that the president routinely – criticizes the intelligence community as being politically motivated and allied against him. He's talking about a deep state. He talks about these conspiracies. He says, as he actually said just this morning in a tweet, that this idea that Russia is trying to help him again is something that's been concocted by Democrats. Well, it's actually the objective analysis of his own intelligence community, not something that's being cooked up by his political enemies. This shakeup and this replacement of people at the top with individuals who are not really experienced in this discipline and who are very clearly allied with the president – makes people wonder, I think, is there some kind of new purge coming within the intelligence community? Is the president going to start digging through the ranks and rooting people out? Uh, Some of our reporting indicates also that the new White House Office of Personnel Chief has been instructed to start looking through the various agencies in the bureaucracy and trying to find evidence of people who are disloyal to the president. But into this context of the president already having such a tense relationship with the intelligence community— Do you have a situation where intelligence leaders are afraid to tell the president things like Russia is interfering in the election in the following ways because they think that he will lash out or fire them or mischaracterize them publicly? Also, if you have an environment in which the intelligence that the community is trying to give to the president and other policymakers is being distorted and misrepresented publicly, um, that the public might not really understand what the true nature of the threat is. Every year, intelligence officials for the past several years have have given a public briefing on the Hill that's always televised or you can find it on C-SPAN, what's called the Global Worldwide Threats Hearing, where they come out and they say, "Okay, these are like the top 10 big issues that we see that Americans should understand that we're tracking and here's what we think about them. That hearing has been postponed indefinitely out of fear by senior intelligence officials that the president will not like what they have to say. The last time there was this hearing – The CIA director and the former national intelligence director said some things on Iran, on North Korea that didn't line up with what the president had been saying publicly, and he got very upset with them. So there's this kind of, you know, stifling of of open dialogue that we're used to having in the intelligence community. Rarely, obviously, because they're pretty secretive. But even those moments where they do have the chance to come and tell the public, here's what we're worried about. We see those being shut down now because of this tense dynamic with the president.
1: Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. across America are embracing drinking as a companion to shopping.
4: A number of grocery stores have started offering this, you know, smaller regional chains. Larger companies like Kroger and Giant are moving in this direction. And we're also seeing it at like furniture stores like Restoration Hardware and Crate and Barrel, which have restaurants in some of their stores now. Even Lululemon now has beer and kombucha and all sorts of food in its store in Chicago. That's
1: Abba Badurai.
4: And I'm the retail reporter for The Washington Post. This has been a trend that's been percolating quietly for a few years. I first noticed it at the Whole Foods where I go shopping. They started having these events on Wednesday where you could go throughout the store, have a few glasses of wine, and then pile up your cart with stuff that you didn't necessarily need. More and more retailers are going in this direction. They're becoming more and more desperate to get people into their stores. And I think providing alcohol is a double whammy. It gets people in. It provides an experience that you can't get online. Um, And at the same time, it kind of liquors them up. It makes them spend more freely.
1: Did you go to any stores for your story that sell alcohol while you shop? And what was it like? I
4: did. I went to the ultimate example of this, which is the new Nordstrom in Manhattan. It has seven restaurants and bars, one on each of its seven floors. And I think the crown jewel here is a huge bar in the middle of the shoe department that's called the shoe bar. They sell cocktails, they sell chicken wings, and it is always packed full of people. So this is like a very visible sign of this trend. And, you know, just walking through that Nordstrom on a regular weekday afternoon, there were people carrying around glasses of champagne while they tried on clothes. And, you know, at the jewelry counter, there were cups of glasses of beer. And so this is just a visible example of how shopping and drinking are coming together.
1: What about the local stores? Did you see this trend happening at your smaller mom and pop grocery stores or shops?
4: Absolutely. I talked to Glenn's Garden Market in the DuPont Circle neighborhood of Washington, which is a small local market where you can buy everything from produce and eggs and a few ready-made foods, cheeses, as well as wine and beer. And they've really doubled down on their bar business um, since they opened. They have a bar at the front of the store where people hang out. There are tables in the front where you can, you know, grab a pint of beer and just kind of gather with, with your friends. And that's really become a big draw for the store. I talked to the owner of Glenn's Garden Market, Danielle Vogel, and she said from the beginning that she was sure that she wanted a bar at the front of her store. The
2: only way people knew we actually had a grocery store behind the bar was because the bathrooms were in the back of the store. So people would have to get off their bar stools to find the bathroom and then incidentally they would discover there was a grocery store in the way.
1: What was the feedback from some of the customers at Glenn's Garden
2: Market?
4: We talked to one shopper, Katie Lou, who lives nearby and says that she really loves having a bar at the local supermarket.
2: I always like to come and like hang out first so I'm at the bar and I'll catch up with whoever is behind the bar and just talk and inevitably I see other neighbors coming in after work and we all just catch up How, how was everyone's day and then from there we either all talk about like do you guys want to split a pizza or what's everyone doing for dinner then I do my shopping.
4: Another woman that I talked to said that she and her mom frequently, you know, go to Neiman Marcus, have a couple of glasses of champagne and then shop. So it's become a way to hang out and make it a social affair.
2: Like if I go to Harris Teeter, I go to Whole Foods. I'm literally trying to get in and out of that store in 30 minutes because I don't like the cramness. I don't like the fact that it seems like people don't really want to talk to you.
1: Yeah, I feel like in my In my personal life, I definitely associate going to the grocery store with stress or with being overwhelmed by trying to get something from aisle two and then having to go to aisle 32 to get something. And I feel like that's, you know, that's a a part of why things like Amazon Fresh and Instacart and fill-in-the-blank online ordering service exists. And it sounds like bringing booze into the shoe department is changing that to a degree, But I'm curious what critics have to say about this.
4: Critics say that the trend is troubling and out of touch given the rise of sober, curious culture and just the number of Americans who are trying to be more deliberate about why they're drinking, how they're drinking, and when they're drinking. We know that alcohol consumption is down about 1.6% worldwide. And we also know that one in eight Americans is an alcoholic. And so there are a lot of people who are struggling with alcohol and it Makes things that much harder for them if they're being presented with, you know, a glass of wine or a beer wherever they go. Do customers see it that way? Like, do they are they aware or do they feel like it's a gimmick? I think some customers are. Um, some absolutely see it as a gimmick, one that they don't want to take part in, and so they'll avoid stores that sell alcohol. I mean, perhaps they're struggling with alcohol, perhaps they're trying to stay sober, and so this becomes one more challenge for people. You know, you can't even go to the supermarket to pick up a gallon of milk or try on jeans without having alcohol sort of shoved in your face.
1: What do you think it says about the retail industry that stores are kind of pulling out all the stops to try and keep people
4: in the store? I think it speaks to sort of larger changes that are happening in the ways that we shop. I think retailers on the whole are more and more desperate to get people into their stores. More people are shopping online because it's convenient, it's easy, and it's taking more and more to get them into their stores. We're seeing everything from indoor climbing walls to, you know, trunk shows and knife sharpening sessions, whatever it takes to get people in.
1: Abba, thank you so much. Thank you. Abba Badurai reports on retail for The Washington Post. And now one more thing. The story of two rebellious women and the CIA, which
0: literally grew up around them. So Florence Thorne and Margaret Scattergood were these two women who were pioneers of the American labor movement. I feel like we should do a a listing of all the words that were used to describe these women to us. (laughs) Spicy. Spicy.
2: Stalwart. Firecracker. Incredibly humble. Mover and a shaker. Generous. A man calls Florence difficult. Difficult. (laughs) And who among (laughs) us hasn't been called difficult? By a man. By a man.
1: Gillian Brookhill writes about history for The Washington Post, and Jessica Contrera is a local enterprise reporter.
2: Florence Thorne was... She was the head of research for AFL, for the American Federation of Labor, in the 1920s and 1930s. She was also a pioneer of keeping unemployment statistics before the government did.
0: She was doing a lot of this work before women could even
2: vote in this country. Right.
0: Margaret was working for Florence... But their relationship became much deeper than that. And they were actually living together in Washington when they decided that they would be happier if they had a house in the country. So they
2: looked around the woods right across the Potomac and saw this beautiful white house. Very idyllic. It has a huge front porch, grand staircase in the hallway. There's just big trees and rolling hills. Margaret said years later that
0: Florence looked at the house and said, of all the houses we looked at, this is the only one that I would care to live in. And so they moved into this house. So in the 1940s, Margaret and Florence learned that various government agencies were buying up the land around them. Um, We don't know for sure how everything unfolded. But somehow uh, there was a deal that was reached. The government could have their land, but only after they died. I think it was their best way to take a stand. I got an email from one of Margaret's great great grandnieces, and she really lamented the fact that, you know, Margaret really had no power to resist what happened. What they did together was research companies that unions were considering striking
2: against. They were conducting their own covert investigations (laughs) of these companies. It's interesting that they were doing this work,
0: I guess, against institutions when kind of one of the biggest institutions was growing right next door to them.
2: They just kept on being fun, rebellious old ladies while the CIA was built around them.
0: Yeah, for 40 years, they lived next door to the CIA.
2: Uh, So Florence died in 1973. Margaret continued to live on the property. Some of her family members moved into the guest house. They were they were somewhat radical like Margaret. And we know
0: that Margaret was the one who was very opposed to what the CIA was doing.
2: And, you know, when, when Margaret was older and she was living in that house by herself, uh, the CIA would, you know, have people on their security detail do regular rounds just to make sure she was okay. So Margaret died in 1986. At 92. At the age of 92. And at that time, the CIA took over the property.
0: So now it is called the Scattergood Thorn Conference Center, named after the women. The CIA uses it for parties and team-building retreats and conferences. Margaret didn't get to pass on her house, but what she passed on was the spirit of, you know, you stand your ground, you do what's right by you.
2: Yeah, And I mean, it's just so much of women's history is is finding out what was going on behind the scenes. And it's really cool that there were these two kind of stubborn, determined women deeply involved in the times that they lived in. Gillian Bruckell writes about history for The Washington Post. Jessica Contrera
0: is a local enterprise reporter. And when the weather is nice, the facilities folks put out two white rocking chairs on the front porch.
1: That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Pinman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Muhammad, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Svarnowski, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Nicole Ellis. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.